Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. We're working through the book of Luke, and uh, we're kind of in a series within a series because we're in this five weeks of generosity uh, within this series of Luke. And, and so today we, we're in chapter five in our series, but I'm going to jump around just a little bit uh, today um, because I want to I point something out to you uh, that's in the book of Luke that many Christians uh, don't notice. And one of the big themes in Luke's writing in, in the gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, there's this huge theme which many of us as Westerners totally miss. And the theme that's in the book of Luke, that is, it's, it's everywhere throughout the book, is this theme of hospitality. Hospitality. Now, I could show you, we don't have time today because of baptisms and stuff, and we're looking forward to seeing those testimonies and stuff, but I could take you through a whole bunch of passages of Scripture in the New Testament to show you that hospitality, even though it's not talked about often in the church, hospitality is a huge theme, not just in, in, in the book of Luke or in the Gospels, but in the Old Testament and right throughout the New Testament. It's actually a command. Paul commands us repeatedly to be hospitable. But I want to show you this in the book of Luke. And I, I showed you in the, first, in the first message of this series when we started in the book of Luke, I showed you that Jesus did a lot of ministry on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Remember we talked about that? How Jesus believes in the corporate gathering of believers on the Sabbath. He believes in the church. And he did lots of ministry in, the, in what were, you know, the church for that time, in the synagogues and in the temple. All right? But there's another huge theme in the book of Luke. And Luke is very concerned that we get this. And that is when Jesus wasn't in on the Sabbath in the synagogues doing ministry, he was in people's homes. And much of the, many of the big events that happened with the early church spreading in the book of Acts and many of the things with Jesus when he was doing his ministry in Luke, Luke wants to point this out to us, that Jesus' um, ministry was really, hospitality was really central to that. And I'm going to start in Luke chapter 14, and I could show you many, okay? Again, I told you I'm going to jump around a little bit in Luke today. I'm not going to systematically keep going where we've been in our series um, but Luke chapter 14, verse 1, is just one example. I'm going to read this to you. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So unfortunately, in those days, they didn't have football you could watch uh, after church. So um, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, again, I could have picked any of a number of stories, but throughout the book of Luke, story after story after story, Jesus is in people's homes. He's in their homes. And in this case, he's in the home of a rich ruler of the Pharisees, a religious person. Now, the reason I picked this one, and I could have picked other ones as well, is a lot of people have this idea nowadays, uh, we kind of swung in the pendulum, and it kind of goes back and forth to the extreme, that Jesus didn't like religious people. He only hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, it is true that Jesus loved to hang out with tax collectors and sinners, and I'll show you a passage in just a moment, Okay. But there's this idea, like I said, that Jesus didn't like religious people. And it's true in the Gospels. He had some uh, harsh rebukes for religious people. But it is not true that Jesus doesn't like religious people or Pharisees. And he was often, in the book of Luke, in the homes of rulers and of Pharisees and of rich people and religious people. All right? And do you know why that makes me really happy? Because when it comes to human beings, Jesus isn't picky. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad about that? I want to show you one verse about the tax collectors and sinners, just so we make sure we get that one in there. 
Luke chapter 5, 29 to 30, but I could show you many with the Pharisees. Uh, Luke 5, 29 to 30 says this, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. There Jesus is in a house again. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus liked to eat in the homes of tax collectors, of sinners, of rich people, of poor people, of religious people, of non-religious people. Jesus wasn't picky. And the reason that makes me very happy is every one of us here today fits into one of those categories. Every one of us here is covered. Well, we're all covered under the, under the label sinners. So we all got caught there already. But whether you be, consider yourself to be a religious person or come from a religious background or non-religious, he doesn't love non-religious people more and he doesn't love religious people more. He wanted to be in everybody's homes. The religious, the rich, the poor, the tax collectors, the sinners, Jesus isn't picky. And you know what's awesome to me? Uh, he wanted, the whole time he was here on earth, he wanted to go into people's homes. But the, the, the thing that just I love so much about him is he hasn't changed today. It wasn't just when he was here on earth that he wanted to go into people's homes. He still wants to come into our homes today and have a conversation with us. And you want to know how I know that? Because the Bible tells us, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. I'm going to put it up there. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus has already, he's risen from the dead. He's gone back to heaven. He's in his physical body still. He always will be for all of eternity. But he's not here on earth anymore. Not, not right now, not till he comes back. And this is what he says from heaven to a bunch of Christians in the church of Laodicea. This is not said to non-Christians, it's said to Christians. And this is what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Again, this, he's not talking to unbelievers here, he's talking to believers. He's standing at your door. This morning, he says, you sit here in this service. He's knocking at your door too, and he says this, if anyone, and, and I love the Greek word there for anyone, it, it, means, it means anyone, Okay. If, if anyone, all right, doesn't matter, religious, legalist, not religious, sinner, tax collector, poor, doesn't matter. If anyone, Jesus isn't picky. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. When he was here on earth, he loved nothing more than to go into people's homes and meet with them and talk with them and minister to them. And he hasn't changed today. By his spirit, he wants to come into your home. He wants to come into my home every day and share a meal with, and, and have a relationship with us where it's like he's a friend having a meal with us. I like the New Living Translation version of this, of this verse. It says this, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. That's what the God of the universe is inviting you and me to today. I mean, yes, we, we hold him in awe and we respect him because he's the God of the universe and he's awesome and holy. But it's him in his word that says, I want to have the kind of relationship where we share a meal as friends. But how many of us have a distant relationship? Our prayer life with God is not like what we see in Revelation 3.20. Our, our prayer relationship with God is like he's distant and he's mad. And when we pray to him, we talk differently than we talk to our friends. We, we use spiritual sounding words and we talk about things that we, we're, we're hoping to talk to him about things that we think will impress him rather than just talk to him about the things on our hearts. But when your friends come over for a meal, you don't talk to them. You don't change the way you talk. You don't talk in religious language. You don't talk about abstract things that don't matter to you. When your friends come over for a meal, what do you talk to them about? You talk to them 
about the things going on in your life. You talk to them about your family. You talk to them about the things that are stressing you out. You talk to them about the things that are exciting you. You talk to them about the things you're looking forward to. You talk to them about the things you're afraid of. Those are the things you talk to your friends about. Jesus says, I want to come into your house. When he was here on the earth, he went into people's homes and talked to them. And today, his spirit wants to come into your home every day and talk to you like you would talk to your friends at supper, the things that matter to you. Now, I want to take just a little aside. I want to just take a little, a little pause here from hospitality. I want to show you something practical. I just felt as I was praying about this that I wanted to take the time to do this in a message because some of you don't know how to do this, but this is something Pastor Ray has taught us for years that we as leaders here have been doing for years and many of you have been doing as well, but I want, I want to talk about it again. Just a very practical thing. What could this look like? What could a Revelation 3 verse 20 prayer life look like where you talk to Jesus like he's a friend that came over for a meal? Okay? And I want to show you one of the things that that we've done here for years. It's called conversational prayer in your journal. And of course, soaked in the Word of God. As we spend time in the Word of God, we don't do this separate from the Word of God, but soaked in the Word of God. It's the Bible itself that tells us He wants to come in and share a meal with us as friends. So what could a prayer life that isn't stilted and boring and dry and dusty, that is more like a conversation, what could that look like with Jesus? And and it's it's something we call conversational prayer. And I'm going to put up an example from my journal. Now, I had to change some details because I didn't want to put all the details of my journal here in front of all of you people. Okay? Not that I don't trust you. I do love you, but it would be too embarrassing for all of us probably if I put all the details in there. So I kind of took a mishmash of several conversations I've had with Jesus recently, changed a couple of details, put it together. But this is basically a conversation I had with Jesus uh, uh, recently. I'm going to just put it up there. I'm going to show you what, what this can look like. What does a Revelation 3 verse 20 prayer life look like? He went and talked to people in, in the Gospels, and in Revelation 3 he says he still wants to talk to us. You can talk to him about anything. So what I like to do is, is, and what Pastor Ray has taught us for years, is I'll just put the first letter of my name. Now, some of you didn't know that Chris is supposed to be spelled with a K, but it is supposed to be spelled that way, all right? So some of you Chris is here today, you've been spelling your name wrong all along, and that's okay. It was your parents' fault. But, um, but so I put, I put just the letter K, that's for me. And then I just talk to Jesus about what's on my heart. So I'm just taking one excerpt of one entry recently that I have with Jesus. I'd spent time in the Word. And then out of that, I said to him, I, I feel stress in my gut this morning, and I don't like it. So I just talked to him. I don't know how many of you ever wake up in the morning sometimes feeling a little stressed and you're not even sure why. I get that sometimes, right? And I don't like it. So I wrote that. And then I write down a J, and then I just write down a thought. Whatever thought comes to me next, if I think it could be from Jesus, I write it down. Now, I don't get hung up here. Some of you are thinking, boy, these people are weird. Well, you'll notice Connie said that about, the, uh, about us too. We embrace that, okay? Weird, generous, that's us here at Southland, all right? Um, but I, I don't worry. Is everything I write by the letter from you know, beside the letter J, is this a word from Jesus Christ in heaven himself? I don't worry about that. If it could be from him, I just write it down. What I find is, as I have this dialogue with him, his Holy Spirit is leading the dialogue, and by the end of the conversation, he'll have given me a nugget that I can test, and it will be from the Lord. And almost always, it leads me back into Scripture, which you'll see in this conversation as well. So I just write down the next thought that comes to my mind. If it could be from Jesus, I just write it down beside the J. And what I felt, the next thought that came to mind is you're stressed about, and there was, some, there was something in the blank there, and it was bang on. It was like, oh yeah, that is what I'm stressed about. And then what you say, well, what do I do next? How do I have a conversation with Jesus? Well, you just write down what comes to your mind next. And I just wrote, you're right. Why is that stressing me out? And then I felt like the next thought that came to me was because you're carrying responsibility for how it turns out. 
And then I said to him, well, isn't it my responsibility? And then he said something that was so profound, like some of these truths as you have these dialogues with him, with the word of God open beside your journal. Some of these dialogues are so profound. He gave me a nugget that has just sat with me now for a few days. It's so powerful. He said this, obedience is your responsibility. Results are my responsibility. And I just took a deep breath and I said, oh, that's good. But then, of course, I had to shoot another question at him. I said, but what if it fails? And I felt like he said, that's not on you, that's on me, let it go. And then he took me to a verse, because in your conversations with him, he will always take you back to Scripture. And it felt like he took me back to John 14, when he said, let not your heart be troubled. And I went there, and then I had to cut out the rest. I had a long conversation with God. I meditated on John 14. We had a long conversation on, on the Scripture. But this is what Jesus says, I want to have the kind of relationship with you where it's like a friend coming into your house and sharing a meal. You can have a prayer life like that with Jesus. It's the kind of prayer life he wants with you, not a dry and dusty one. And you know what you'll find? There are so many burdens. You can get up with stress. You can get up with fear. You can get up with all kinds of things. But if you will spend time with Jesus like this, he will lift every burden from your soul. And you'll be able to go forth in peace. And it's wonderful, okay? So I thought I would just drop it in there. But if we keep going back, if we go back to the book of Luke and um, we're going to find that this is exactly what we find Jesus doing with everyone. He loved going into people's homes to share a meal and talk. In fact, when he trained his disciples to do ministry, he trained them to do ministry around hospitality. And if we go to Luke chapter 10, the first six verses, we looked at this passage a little bit in this series already in the message on spiritual warfare. Um, but I want to show you a different piece of this passage we didn't look at. Luke 10 verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Now, this Jesus, this is, it's not like every time he sent them out to do ministry, they couldn't bring any money with or couldn't bring a change of clothes um, different times, he, he gave them different instructions, okay? This is a one-time thing in terms of that. He was teaching them to rely on him. But now look at this next part, what he says. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be this house. So Jesus, as he sends these 72 out, he says, this is what I want you to do. First thing you get to that, that, the town, he says, I don't want you staying in an inn. I don't want you staying, I mean, they didn't have hotels and motels like we do now, but they had inns. He said, I don't want you staying in an inn. I don't want you camping on the outskirts of town. Okay, he could have given them money to do that. I mean, Jesus could make money coming to nothing. Plus, he had some rich women who were following in his entourage. He could have gotten some money from them. He said, I don't want you going out with any money. One reason is he wanted to teach them to rely on him. But another reason is, he said, I want you to do your ministry this way. I want you to go and stay in somebody's house. I want you to go and stay in somebody's house. And we'll talk about why in just a moment. Verse 6, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. You say, why would Jesus want them? Why would he so specifically say, you know, don't put yourself up in an inn. Don't put yourself up in a tent. I want you to go into someone's home. And then from the home is your base of operations for ministry. Why would Jesus say, <clears throat> I want you to do in your ministry of a home. And I'll tell you one of the reasons, I'm sure there's many reasons, Jesus and his sovereignty, there'll be many reasons. But I'll tell you one of the reasons is because something happens in a person's heart, in a person's relationship when you go into their house. Isn't that true? 
Like, you can know somebody at work, you can know somebody at church, okay? And you can have many great conversations, you can have prayer times, you can even confess things to each other. But there is a whole dimension to your relationship that cannot be opened up until either you go into their house or they come into yours. Isn't that true? Um, this last church renewal weekend, my wife and I, for the first time, we, f- we finally have a spare bedroom now in our home. And for the first time, we were able to billet uh, one of the visiting pastors. So we had a pastoral couple from a small church in Toronto, Ramesh and Elsie, came and stayed in our home for three days. And it's amazing what happens in three days. We never met these people before in our life. But in three days, we became like old friends, okay? Now, I've had over the years, and even this past church renewal weekend, I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations with different pastors from all over Canada, North America, and the world. But there's only one Ramation Elsie. There's only one pastoral couple we've ever exchanged personal uh, information with and who we have kept in contact since, and that's Ramation Elsie. Why? Something happened. They came into our home. We had a couple of late-night talks, too late, uh, we shared some late-night snacks. We had breakfast together a couple of times. And something happens when you're, someone's in your home, and it's like now we're friends. We didn't just talk together at church, but it's like we're friends now. They would like us to come and visit them sometime. And we've only met them this one time. Why? Something happens in a heart, in a relationship, when you go into someone's home. Now, again, this whole chapter just reminds me of so many of our cell leaders here at this church who are doing ministry just like this. Week after week, they have people into their homes and they minister to them. And I know, too, that we have a number of cell groups for various reasons um, who also meet here at the church, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's amazing, too. Lots of ministry can happen here at the church for sure. But even within that, I would say some of those of you who lead cells or tables at, at some of our big cell groups that meet here in the church building, if you want to take that, if you want to take your ministry to a whole other level, Uh, Think about, you know, once or twice a year getting together, having the people from your group into your home or several times throughout the year going to visit some of your group members in their home. Something happens when you go into a home. It just opens people up to more ministry and for the gospel to go in deeper. And this is exactly the way the early church spread. You'll see this throughout the book of Luke. But in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, we see this is how the church spread. Acts chapter 2, right after the Holy Spirit fell, fell on them and many, many people were getting saved, this is the description we read of what happened. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. <clears throat> and they, that's the early Christians, the, those first Christians right after Pentecost, this is what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They were together all the time and had all things in common. They were sharing. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Two things that are needed for for a church body, for a church family. Okay? Number one, they were meeting together corporately at the temple. There's no question the corporate public gathering to worship God and hear teaching from God's word is part of being a part of the body of Christ. Okay? That's part of being part of a church. But too many people in our culture now think that's all there is to it. I can just attend church and now I'm part of a church. But they didn't just come to the corporate gathering. They did something else. During the week, they were together in each other's homes for fellowship. If you only come to a service and you don't know what it's like to be in homes for fellowship during the week or with a smaller group of people, whatever it is, you're actually missing out. You, ha- you aren't fully experiencing what it's like to be part of the body of Christ. Both things are needed. 
They met, they attended the temple together, and they were breaking bread in their homes. Both things are needed. And what I also love is that next line there, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. There's that word generous again. And the reason it's used there, genero, genero, the reason I want to point this out is generosity and hospitality are linked. And the reason I wanted to bring that up here is because for some of you, you, all, you think the only kind of generosity when it comes to church is when the offering plate comes by, and obviously that's an important one. And there's much joy in that. And to be sacrificially giving for God's kingdom is, is wonderful. And we see the impact we're having now around Canada and around the world because of your generosity is awesome. But for some of us, we, when we think of generosity, we only think of putting money in the offering plate. But it's not true. Hospitality is also a form of generosity. Generosity is much bigger than just putting money in a plate. It's a whole way of looking at life. And when you open up your home to people and have people in and you serve them a meal and you spend time with them and you open up your hearts to them, that is part of, a gener of generosity that is not something to be ignored, that that's less than, that is part of what generosity is. It's part of what it means to be generous. And I want you to notice not only were they generous, look at the combination there. They, they were glad and they were generous. And did you know that those two things go together? Some of you here today, I'm, I'm going to give you some help. I know many of you have, have you know, seasonal depression here in Manitoba. That's probably almost all of us, okay? It sets in somewhere around the end of October, and it leaves somewhere in the middle of June, right? Somewhere. Um, but it's, and I don't want to make light of those of you who actually have seasonal depression, but it can be hard, right? But if those of you who want to be glad, you want, did you know that generosity will make you happy? There is so much science around this now. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. You can, I mean, you guys all have access to Google. You can look up studies on your own. I just looked up several this last week. But they, it's now like a fad in science to do studies on the connections between generosity and happiness. But I'll just tell you a couple of studies that I looked up, but there are many, many, many more. I looked up one study they did at the University of Zurich. They took a big group of people, and they, gave, they got this whole group of people together, and they gave each of them 100 bucks. And I said, where was I when they were calling for this uh, study? But they got a whole big group of people together and they gave them 100 bucks and they divided the group into half. And they said to one half, they said, you have to spend $100 on yourself. And they said to the other half people, you have to spend $100 on someone else. Now, which group would you rather have been in, right? Right? And then what they did is they hooked up their brains to all kinds of scans, okay? And they scanned their brains at different times. And they, the first time they scanned the brain is right when they gave them the money and told them what they had to do with it. And they scanned their brains right when the people were just thinking what they had to do with it. So the people who had to spend the money on themselves had to just think about what do I want to spend this 100 bucks on. And the people who had to spend it on someone else, they had to think about what they were going to get for that other person. Okay? And what they found, even before they had actually committed the act of generosity, just thinking about generosity immediately activated the parts of the brain that uh, have to do with joy and happiness and pleasure immediately. And they followed this, and this was true right throughout the, the, the study. Those who had to give the money away, the parts of the brain associated with happiness and pleasure and, and, and joy and all that sort of stuff were activated as they gave that was not activated when they spent on themselves. Is that not interesting? And then, they, and then, of course, they got feedback from all the participants too, and they found right across the board, those who had to give the money away happy and those who had to spend on themselves did not experience that same level of happiness. Isn't that amazing? But you know, it goes even beyond, and, and again, you can look up study after study after study linking generosity and happiness, but it's not just your happiness, it's also your health, okay? Some of you, no doubt, are here today with high blood pressure. You might want to get your, your, your paper out and your pen right now 
and I'm going to give you some medical advice, all right? I'm going to give you some medical advice. They did, they've done a bunch of studies on, on blood pressure and generosity. They did one study, did a whole big group of elderly people with high blood pressure, and they studied them. Uh, now, the results of the study, I don't know how long the study went on, but they looked at the results two years later, okay? So the, the effects were two years long. And basically what they tracked with all the people in this, in this group was um, people who, who weren't spending money on other people who were just spending on themselves. And then they tracked people who were regularly spending money on other people and how much they spent. And here's what they found. Uh, not only, so the people who didn't spend money on others, their blood pressure didn't change. The people who did spend money on others, their blood pressure actually went down. But here's the really interesting thing. The more money they spent, the more, the more their blood pressure went down. Is that not interesting? By the way, for those of you with high blood pressure, the Christmas offering is in two weeks, so you just might want to make note of that. Okay? Just, just don't... I, I'm thinking of a slogan, how low do you want it to go, right? How low do you want it to go? Um, but, I mean, it's just wired in there, all right? Uh, they did another study three weeks, and another group of people with high blood pressure, one group of people were assigned to spend money on themselves, uh, you know, over the course of the three weeks, and other group of people were, were given assignment to... Uh, repeatedly spend money on others over the course of three weeks, and significantly, within three weeks, significantly, the people who were giving money away, their blood pressure went down. And they've done many other studies that link generosity with longevity of life and all these sorts of things. Do you know what this means? This is just proving, this just shows us what, what kind of a God God is, because he made us in his image, and generosity is wired into us biologically. It's actually, generosity is wired into us biologically. Now, unfortunately, many people don't never experience the benefits of it because of sin and woundedness and lies we believe and fear and scarcity, and we don't think we're going to have enough and all that sort of stuff. We have all these things that keep us from being generous, but biologically, our bodies know generosity is good for us, and we were made in God's image. He's a generous God, and a generous person is a happier healthier person, and a person who just lives on their own and keeps all their stuff to themselves, and they're too afraid that their house is messy to have people over, or a generous person who's hospitable is going to be uh, happier and healthier. And this leads us to the next line there, and the Lord added to their number day by day. And of course he did. His Holy Spirit was moving powerfully. But joy and generosity and hospitality are three of the most attractive qualities to human beings. The entire human race is looking for these things. We want joy. We want to be accepted somewhere. We want to be part of a group that is generous to us, that we can be generous to them, that we can belong. And so people flocked into the early church because this is what they were. With glad and generous hearts, they were in each other's homes having fellowship. Sociologists that study the, the growth of the early church, Rodney Stark is a, is a big one. He's written books about this, but, um, but there's other ones as well. They say that one of the things, and again, we know it was the Holy Spirit doing it, but what were the mechanisms the Holy Spirit was using to grow the early church in the Roman Empire? And one of the big things uh, that God was using was hospitality. Many people in the Roman Empire were absolutely irresistibly attracted to this new group of people that just loved on each other, and they took care of the sick, and they were in each other's homes, and they had glad and generous hearts. And this is how the early church grew. It's absolutely amazing. And, and you know, um, as I was praying, getting ready for this message, though, I was, I was asking God, okay, uh, I, I, it's, I mean, I get that it's attractive. It's amazingly attractive. Hospitality and generosity are amazingly attractive. Um, but, but why would this be important? Because in, in, in churches, we don't tend to talk about hospitality a lot. 
And like I said, I could show you verses in the New Testament where Paul commands it, where he puts it on the list of requirements for church leadership. But we, we, we read these verses, but we just, hospitality isn't one of those top 20 things. If you're going to talk about the most important things for church to talk about, hospitality wouldn't be in that top 20. We think, well, that's a nice thing. People who are hospitable are nice, but it's not an important thing. And, and so I was asking God, aside from the fact that it's so, that it's so attractive and it's such a wonderful way to live, why would hospitality be uh, so important to you? And, and I feel like the reason, I, I think the big reason, and I think there's obviously, again, probably a number of reasons, but I think the big reason has to do with the fact that we view salvation in evangelical circles, I think, quite wrongly oftentimes. And many, for many evangelicals this last century, how we view salvation is, I get saved so I can go to heaven someday after I'm dead. Now, amen to that. Um, one of the big reasons why we want to give our lives to Jesus is because we want to be with him after death. That is, that's a, that's a, that is a big reason why we get saved. It's a wonderful comfort to us and, and certainly will always be a big motivator why we give our lives to Christ. Yes. But what it kind of breeds in a lot of Christians is this mentality, our whole goal is just to get out of here. I'm getting saved so I can go to heaven. But you know, the interesting thing is, as you read the Bible, the Bible gives us a lot of hope for life after death. But have you ever noticed, when you read the prophets, when you read Isaiah and the other prophets, you read the book of Revelation, have you ever noticed that there's not a real big emphasis on us getting out of here? Like, we have this idea of heaven again. I've talked about it many times before. The old Philadelphia cream cheese commercials, people playing harps and floating around on wings in the clouds. And none of us actually really finds that attractive, but it's better than the other one, so okay, we'll go with it. Better to go there, right? But have you ever noticed that when you read the Bible, there's not an emphasis on us getting out of here. What does the Bible all point towards? A day when Jesus will what? Come back. The goal in Scripture is not for us to get out of here and float around in the clouds forever. God actually loves the creation he made. He loves the earth. The goal is for him to come back and set up his kingdom here on earth and renew and restore and reconcile everything. That's the goal, to make a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 22, 20, uh, 21 and 22, right? John says, I saw, I saw the heavenly city coming out, down from heaven onto the earth. God makes a new heavens and a new earth. I'm going to live a physical existence here on the earth. Well, once you realize that, that the goal of everything isn't for us just to escape and get out, you realize you're not just saved from something to get out, to escape. We're actually saved for something. We were saved to become the people of God, to one day live for all of eternity with Jesus here on earth and to be his people here on the earth, which means that after you give your life to Christ, obviously it's only going to be him that's going to be able to restore the whole earth. But in the meantime, while we're here on the earth, we're not trying to escape. We're here to prophetically live out the kingdom of God here on earth. Which means then, again, you're not saved just from. We are saved from our sins, and we are saved from, you know, an eternity away from Jesus. But we're also, more importantly, we're saved for something, which is to be God's representatives here on earth, to be God's family here on earth. And when you realize that then, generosity and hospitality take on a whole new meaning. Because when you are hospitable, you're not just being nice. It's not just a nice way of living, an attractive way of living, a healthy way of living. What you are doing is you're bringing a little piece of heaven down to earth. You're showing the world prophetically what Jesus' kingdom looks like. And that, so really, generosity and hospitality and that whole lifestyle of joy is kind of the whole point. That's what you were saved for, to be that on the earth now as we wait for Jesus to come and set it up fully. Does that make sense? 
And so it's incredibly important to God. It's not just a little thing. It's not just a nice thing. But I, I need to finish off this message now. And so I want to bring it down from that kind of big pie in the sky. And I want to bring it down very practically. And I want to just finish by talking about two things. And we can talk about many things. But two barriers that keep us. So we've looked at the big picture. Why is hospitality important? The early church, you know, grew on the backs of hospitality. Jesus, you know, trained his disciples, in, you know, to minister around hospitality. But I just want to look at, very briefly at two barriers that keep us from living hospitable kinds of lifestyles. And again, there's many that we could look at, but these are just very practical. Uh, why are, aren't Christians more hospitable and generous? First of all, some of us are too self-conscious. We're too worried about our image and impressing people. Some of us don't live a hospitable lifestyle because we're worried about how clean our house is or how nice our house is that we just couldn't think of having people over. Isn't that true? Like for some of us to have people into our home, it's like uh, I, I need two days off of work and I got to scrub everything down and I got to make sure everything's clean. I got to get the absolute best recipes I possibly can so I can serve this gourmet meal and then pretend like I just did all of this it was when I came home from work. And you know secretly why we want to do that? It's because we want to impress people. And I want to tell you something here today. Hospitality is not about impressing people. It's about loving people. And how, I don't know how many of you, but how, have ever been around someone who's like superwoman or superman? How many of you felt worse after you were with them? Okay. Do you know anybody like that? Any people like that? And you think, how did they get that out? You never feel better when you're around Superman or Superwoman. You don't feel better, you feel worse, okay? See, you want, you want to know what's actually good for people when you have people over? Actually, you should have a couple of stains on the sink. Not a pigsty, okay? Yeah. A couple of crumbs on the floor. Make them understand that you're actually a regular person, right? But when we put on this whole show... And then they show up and it's this amazing thing. That's not, that's not, hospitality is loving people. It's not impressing people, amen? So one thing is some people were just too self-conscious to have people into our home. But we need to just be regular people. We need to be vulnerable to love people. Another reason why we're not hospitable is some of us are just too busy. We're on a hamster wheel of life. We're on a hamster wheel of life. And there's different reasons why people, you know, we're too busy for hospitality. For some of us, we're too busy because of work. And let me just say this. First of all, to work hard is a good thing. That's from God. To work hard and to be successful is a good thing. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. To have a good work ethic, to work hard, to work lots of hours and, and be successful at something, that is from God. That's a gift from God. But there's a certain point where working hard becomes consumed with work. Where working hard flips over into my whole life is work. And at that point, you're no longer bringing heaven down to earth. You are saved to be the people of God. And there's a certain point where working hard isn't just working hard anymore. It's my whole life is consumed with work. And I have no time for hospitality. I have no time for relationships. And you know, in heaven... It's true, we're going to work in heaven. Work is from God, and work is good. And I know every time I say there's going to be work in heaven, some of you go, woohoo, and some of you go, oh, right? There's going to be work in heaven, but there are going to be no workaholics in heaven. I'll tell you that right now. We're going to work in heaven. It's going to be a joy, and work should be a, a, a joy for us here on earth as well. But for some of us, we're on the hamster wheel of life. We are, we're, we're working so hard, we don't have time to fit in hospitality. But there's another reason why some of us are too busy on the hamster wheel of life to have hospitality, and that is because we've bought into the hamster wheel of the North American dream for what parenting is all about. 
And the North American dream of what parenting is all about is you've got to have your kids in as many sports and activities and as much music as humanly possible for your schedule. Now, I know the moment I, I, the moment I tread here, I'm treading on thin ice. And I know people can get really upset about this. I want to just say something just right off the bat. First of all, it's not bad to have your kids in sports or in music. Those are wonderful things. Music is a wonderful thing to help your kids develop you know, their brains, character, sports, some amazing things kids can learn in sports. It's not that you shouldn't have your kids in sports or activities or music. Absolutely not. But it is not a rare thing anymore in our culture to have parents who are busy four, five, six nights every single week with their kids' activities. And again, I know for some parents, it's actually a calling. I've seen parents who've done it well and within sports and they, they coach and they include their kids and somehow they're able to do it. It's actually a calling from God. I'm not saying it's impossible, but for many parents, people look at them and they say, look at that super family. Look at all the stuff they're in. Those are super kids and yada, yada, yada. And, and, and you talk to them and they say, oh, we just love being busy. But you know what that is? It's actually not in many cases true joy. It's actually just adrenaline. And they're busy, 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 busy. And it looks so awesome in the outside world. And their marriages are this deep. Their relationships are this deep. As you know that it actually takes time to have a good marriage. I don't care who you are. It actually takes time to have real relationships. And you're busy, busy. Again, and you, can I just say this to you too? God's not mad at you. I really felt Jesus saying this whole weekend. He wanted to commend us as a church. And I'm not challenging you this week. You've got to change absolutely everything you're doing right now. But I'm, I'm suggesting to you a different, a, a different way, something to consider and to pray about, something that has been said many times before. This is not just me. It's been said many, many times. But we are human beings, not human doings. We're human beings, not human doings. And when you're busy, 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 at some point we want to have the perception of super people. I got a great marriage. I'm great at this. I'm great at that. And I'm working tons of work. And my kids are superstars, each of them, in seven different things. And everybody goes, wow. And we all feel terrible around you. And you feel good about yourself. But the fact of the matter is, God has given all of us 24 hours in a day and only seven days in a week. And there does not exist superman or superwoman. When you put it all into one place, it's coming out somewhere else. It's coming out somewhere else. And for many people, their relationship with God, their relationship with their spouse, their, then their friendships with other people, it's this deep. And God says, it doesn't have to be that way. And so, there, you know, for some of you, and I, I gotta, I've got to finish this up right away. One of the things you have to understand is that sometimes, if you're a parent here today, it's actually okay, occasionally, from time to time, even weekly, to have an evening where there's nothing to do. What might happen? What, are we allowed? Nothing to do. What, what would that mean for me as a person? My value is wrapped up in my busyness. You know what will happen from time to time if you have evenings where you have nothing to do? You'll actually have some conversations. Can I, can I just be candid with you about something that happened recently? How many of you, do, do you mind if I'm candid with you about one thing? Um, none of you said yes, but I did it yesterday, so I'll do it again here. About a month ago, I had a conversation, and these are the kinds of things that can only happen when you're not rushing. We were sitting at the end of supper, and we had nothing up that evening. So we didn't have to quickly clean everything up, pack the kids in a van, and rush off to something. We were just sitting there, taking our time, not rushing. 
My six-year-old daughter suddenly pipes up and says, and these things only happen when you're doing nothing, right? Not when you're rushing. My six-year-old daughter suddenly pipes up and says, Dad, what happens if I'm gay before I'm married? And all the other kids go, (laughs) Those are wonderful questions. Are those not wonderful questions? And in a moment, some of you are giggling. Is that a wonderful question? That's a wonderful question to have with your kids. They're hearing all kinds of stuff out there, and they want to know. But if you don't have time for those conversations to happen, they won't happen. And if you don't have time to have people into your home, there's all sorts of richness of what is God doing in their lives and your life that will never happen if you don't have some margin in your life to actually be, just be with people. So let me give you a weekly challenge, and then we'll go to the baptisms. I'm so looking forward to those testimonies. A couple of things to take with you this week to think about and to pray about. Invite, I I would encourage you to pray about this, this Christmas season. Invite someone or a group of someones over this Christmas season you otherwise would not have had into your home. Just ask God this, this, this week. Spend some time. Ask him, give me a name or some names. It could be a brunch. Be creative. Could be a lunch. Could be a breakfast. It doesn't have to even be an evening thing. Could be an evening thing. Lord, who's someone we could have in our home to be a blessing to them and open up a whole new dimension of a relationship and a minister to them? And maybe you're sitting there and you're going, you know what, our schedule is just so busy, I don't see how it'll fit. Don't put this on as another thing. Don't add hospitality as another, just another thing on top of a bunch of other things. What I encourage you to do this week is pray about. Jesus, are there things I can take out of my schedule? It's, how can I build some margin into my schedule that I can begin to live what the Christian life is supposed to be, which is about loving people and loving God? The second thing I would encourage you to do this Tuesday, day after tomorrow, uh, starting at 7 o'clock here at the church, we'll have the prayer summit. We're going to actually pray about this hospitality thing. We're also, if you're a cell leader here today, we're going to pray over every cell leader that comes on Tuesday night because our cell leaders, they're really on the front edge of this whole thing, this kind of ministry, that they're the ones. And we're growing and making our prayer summits even more hospitable. Those of you who are afraid to come and pray with a big group of people, we'll have the prayer room open. You can go in there and pray on your own if you're, if you're too nervous to come in here. We're going to have it set up. The, the, the chairs are going to be set up in threes, not some of those really big groups where, where people are sometimes intimidated to sit down in a big group. If you want to just come and pray with your spouse, you can come and just sit down with, you know, on a couple of chairs and pray. If you do come with your cell, as many of you do, you can just quickly turn some chairs around and make your group. But we're trying to make it more hospitable. I encourage you to come and join us for prayer this Tuesday. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to see some testimonies. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your generosity and hospitality to us. We love you, Jesus. Would you continue to work in our hearts here at Southland? Thank you for the testimonies, the changed lives we're about to see and witness, and we just rejoice with these people. And Lord, would you grow us in this thing of hospitality and generosity? Would you grow us in that this Christmas? Not just to do it once, but to become a hospitable, joyful, glad, and generous people. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.